0: Um, Whether you're here with us in the sanctuary or whether you're joining us online on our Facebook platform, we're really glad uh, to have you worship uh, with us here at Christ the King. And if you've been around the last few weeks, you'll know that we're in a sermon series called Stories of Jesus, looking at stories told, His parables, and also stories of things He did. Beautiful things, sometimes scandalous things, and always amazing things. This morning, we're going to be contemplating one of the most extraordinary most memorable events from the life and times of Jesus, that night he walked on water. And I think there's a slide for that that should pop up. There we go. Um, He walked on water. He even invited his disciples, one of them called Peter, to hop out of the boat and have a go at it too. We're going to look at this. It's fascinating. But before we do, let me pray. Lord God, as your um, scripture has been opened for us, send your spirit now open our hearts to your word, that we might receive it with gratitude, that we might inwardly digest it, and that we might be spiritually nourished by it. Amen. So, um, as with all the stories of Jesus that we have been pondering, this story is brimming with significance. Uh, In other words, aside from the fact that the miracle itself is eye-popping... It grabs our attention immediately. It has a purpose which goes far beyond the event of water walking itself. And so along these lines, we grapple with this story as we work through this passage. There are a few things I want us to think about, to wrestle with. First, there's the impossible. Because after all, we're talking about somebody walking on water. Second, there's the astounding. Because in walking on water, Jesus is revealed as no less than God. As the one who created the water the maker of the earth and the heavens, the master of the universe. And third, there's the joining. Because Peter, as we've just heard, ends up joining Jesus out there on the water. And when that happens and what ensues, we gain a few key insights on the life of faith. So the impossible, the astounding, and the joining. There you have it, folks. It's off to the races. Now, if you've been in London in 2013... If you've been near the River Thames over by the Parliament buildings, you would have seen something you don't see every day, something seemingly impossible. There was a guy who went down to the water's edge, stepped off of the bank and onto the water, onto the river, and then he took some steps and he took some more steps and he went on out about 15 or 20 feet right on top of the water. You can YouTube this and watch it. Now, it was a spectacle. People came out with cameras and video recorders. Uh, The guy who did this, he's called Dynamo. And he's a magician, an illusionist, quite well known in Britain as a magician. Which is precisely why nobody who was watching him asked if they could come out onto the water with him. Because they knew that they were, while they were saying something spectacular, they knew that it was an illusion, an impossibility. They knew that if they attempted to go with him, they were gonna, next thing they were after gonna do is go to a laundromat with a really fast dryer and get their clothes dry so they could get back to the office before the lunch hour was over. Now when we read today's story of Jesus, perhaps that same sort of thought crosses our mind. Impossible. A lot of people over the years and over the centuries uh, have, and certainly in modern times, have had that sort of response to this story and others like it. Some of the people who had this response uh, were a group of high-powered, if slightly wonky, and definitely tendentious German academics. A group of 19th century German scholars. you probably never heard of them, but they've got names like Schleiermacher and von Harnack and Bauer and Slight uh, strauss Schweitzer, sounds like the lineup of the Munich team. There they are right there. Here's what you need to know. These guys collectively, along with some other scholars, they argued quite persuasively, they were very culturally influential, that the early church invented all of the stories about Jesus like the story of him walking on water. That the early church made up those stories to confirm their belief that Jesus was God. In other words, about 50 years after Jesus' crucifixion, the men and women who had been moved and influenced by his teaching and charismatic presence, they concocted and fertilized miracle tales to develop and confirm the idea that Jesus was God. Here's another thing you need to know. Underlying all of these higher critical German theories is a shared assumption that the miraculous events in the New Testament are impossible, they can't happen. It's against the laws of nature and the laws of physics. It's impossible. They all took that for granted. And so there must be some other sort of explanation. In coming up with another explanation, here's what they came up with about the story that we're looking at today. They said it must have been that there was a spit, a sand spit under the water, and that Jesus was uh, standing on that, and it was concealed. So it looked like he was walking on water. That Jesus came out and... Uh, trod along a submerged sandbar out to his disciples in their boat and they were deceived about what was actually happening or maybe Jesus was just trying to trick them all these learned German scholars they actually believed this sort of thing here's the pickle however this kind of explanation rides roughshod over what the gospels say Indeed, based on what Matthew tells us, if you look carefully and study it carefully, and also Luke and Mark and John, because this story is reported in all of these Gospels, that sand spit theory seems a little bit crazy, a little bit impossible. Look carefully at the text. Verse 24, when all this happened, the boat was a long way from land. St. John, in his report, says it was three or four miles out. That would have to be quite some sand spit. I'm not an expert on sand spits, but that is quite some sand spit. Verse 25, when the disciples saw Jesus walking out to them on the waves, they said it was in the fourth watch of the night. That's an eyewitness detail that you do not find in myth and legend stories from this time. They don't have those sorts of details. Verse 26, when Peter and his comrades saw Jesus, they were initially terrified. They thought he was a ghost. Now, why on earth would that kind of detail be included in this story if it was made up 50 years after the fact? That's an odd detail to include. Verse 30. Peter cried out as he began to sink. Why would Peter begin to sink if there was a sand spit? So, did Jesus deceive his disciples? Did the early church make all this up? I don't think so. In fact, I think it's quite reasonable, or at least it's less preposterous, that what we're seeing here is grounded in eyewitness testimony. There's a guy called Richard Balkum who's written about this. If you want to learn more, I'll point you to his book. This was not an unwitnessed event. And it wasn't just that there was one witness. There were a boat full of witnesses. And so the upshot is that I think in this story what we're dealing with is a real man called Jesus from a real place called Nazareth in a real time around 32 or 33 AD on a real lake called the Sea of Galilee interacting with real disciples in a real boat between three and six on a real early morning and really walking on real H2O. Again, was this unusual? You bet your bottom dollar it was. This is not something you see every day. But impossible, no, not impossible. Yet absolutely extraordinary. More than this, however, it's astounding. It's astounding. Because even while Jesus is a real guy, walking walking on real water, talking to real disciples, he's not just any old guy. What we encounter in Matthew 14 is evidence that God has broken into the world through his son, just like he always promised he would. We're talking about the master of the universe, Popping down for a visit. Matthew's making this absolutely clear, and it is astounding, which is precisely why everybody in the boat at the end, verse 33, they fall on their faces and worship. You don't do that for a trickster or a magician or an illusionist. These guys know real power when they see it, and they know that there's only one person who has this kind of power. Let's move on so I can show you what I mean. Now, to appreciate the astoundingness of this story, you've got to recognize that there's some deja vu happening here. Something that once occurred is occurring again. It's deja vu. And what is that? It's exodus events. Exodus events. In other words, what happens in Matthew 14 is framed in light of what you read about in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Some of you will know this book, uh, not least of which if you've seen Prince of Egypt. That's a recent telling of the... uh, um, exodus story and if you're of an older generation you might know it from the Ten Commandments where Charlton Heston plays Moses that's a great old epic film too if you go back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament there are several unforgettable things you read about and all of this happens in the context of God working through his servant Moses to deliver the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt and to bring them over into the promised land to a new and better life in the promised land which, we, which came to be known as Israel One of the extraordinary events that God does in the Exodus is to feed his people supernaturally in the desert. It was manna from heaven, pieces of bread that fell out of the sky and people would pick them up every day, breakfast, lunch and dinner, you've got manna, except on on the Sabbath. You don't pick it up on the Sabbath. But it was manna from heaven, God feeding people out in the desert, out in a barren place. And then another extraordinary event, miraculous event, was God taking charge of the waters of the Red Sea, causing that sea to to part or to recede so that the Hebrew slaves could pass through to freedom on the other side. Two key Exodus events. And those two events, God uses those to reveal that He is Lord and Savior. He feeds people bread in the desert. He is a master of the waters because He's the Lord and Savior. And that's the blueprint, you might say, for the long-range plan that God has in His mind to rescue all people and bring all of us into a promised land. To bring all of us out of everything that wrecks and ruins our lives in this world into a glorious future where every tear is going to be wiped away and where all mourning is going to be turned to dancing. So that's the Exodus framework. And guess what? It's playing out again right here, deja vu, right here in Matthew 14. Earlier in Matthew 14, what do you see? You see Jesus feeding masses of people bread out in the desert. We talked about that miracle a few weeks ago. And then in today's story, what do we see? A little bit later in Matthew 14, we see Jesus taking charge of the waters. The wind and the waves, they know his name. The boss has come into the room. Everybody's simmered down now. That's what's happening here. Has all that remind you of anything? It's not rocket surgery. But if you're still perplexed, if you're still confused, just look at what Jesus says in verse 27. The Greek word right at the very end of that verse is explosive. The disciples are wailing, they're panicking, the waves are knocking the boat around, they think the ship's going down, and then Jesus, the water walker, comes out to them, and at first they think he's a phantom, but he quickly disabuses them of that impression. He says, guys, take heart, it is I. It is I. Now the Greek, underneath that phrase, is ego me Say that with me. Ego ami. very important Greek phrase in the New Testament. Don't worry, I don't do Greek lessons a lot in my sermons, but that's a, this is an important one. Ego ame is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that God used when he revealed himself to Moses back in the Exodus event. It's a Hebrew word that some of you will know. We say it as Yahweh. We don't actually know how it would have been pronounced. We say it as Yahweh, that's what we think it would have sounded like. And what does Yahweh mean? It means I am that I am. It is I. That is the personal name for God most high. Jewish people then and now will not even say it out loud. It is so holy they dare not put it on their lips. Yet Jesus right here in verse 27 puts it on his. He takes this name upon himself because that's who he is. It's what he's telling us with his voice, ego me. It's what he's demonstrating with his power. The wind and the waves, they know who they're dealing And so do the disciples. This is, in the context of Matthew's gospel, this is a moment when the penny drops for them. If they were wondering if Jesus was just an inspired, wandering rabbi, you know, a wise, sage guy, a charismatic teacher, they're not wondering anymore. Which is why, verse 33, they fall on their faces and start worshipping. They start worshipping. What does that mean? That word means that you give someone their due that you bow and surrender to a power that is greater than yourself that you recognize you are in the presence of someone who is infinitely superior that's what's going on here because to encounter Jesus is to encounter God to encounter not part of reality but reality itself not just a spark of divinity but the one who is the source of all other light and life the one who was and is, and shall be. The disciples get it. They are astounded. They are recognizing that Jesus is the one in whom all authority in heaven on earth has been given. They are beginning to see Jesus for who he is. Do you? Do you see him for who he is? Does your heart, like their hearts say, truly you are the son of God, I bow in your presence. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated, O oh Lord, to Thee. Have you been astounded? Are you astounded? On we go to a, a third and final theme from this story today the theme of joining, which is exactly what Peter does when he joins Jesus on the water, not in the water, on the water. He joins Jesus on the water. How about that? Look again at verses 28 through 31. Jesus has walked out onto the sea of Galilee the disciples have spotted him and after having confirmed that it is not cast for the friendly ghost but in fact Jesus, Peter does something bold the fear of the wind and the waves that was inside of him gripping him it all disappears for a moment and he says verse 28 he says invite me out onto the water with you I want to join you and what does Jesus say he says buddy come on out there's plenty of space on the water what an awesome moment But seconds later, things shift from awesome to awful because Peter starts to look around and to see that he is in fact standing in the middle of a terrifying storm and the spiritual adrenaline that was in him begins to drain out. His heart begins to sink and then his feet begin to sink. He thinks the storm is going to consume him. Now in evaluating this moment and what happens next, there are three quick little lessons I want to draw out, lessons on the life of faith. First, there's a lesson on the nature of faith. Verse 29, Peter got out of the boat. Peter got out of the boat. True faith, in other words, is active. It acts. And this may be a little bit of a surprise for some of you. Certainly it is in our cultural context because many people these days, when they hear the word faith, they think faith refers chiefly to your inner beliefs to some quiet internal insurance. Faith is a sort of mental or emotional affair. It's about how you understand or feel about God. It's internal. Now, to be sure, true faith is no less than this, but based on today's story, it's a lot more than that. Let me put it like this. Faith is a venturesome thing. It ventures out onto the water. It steps into the seemingly impossible out of the conviction that the God who carries our trust can redefine what is possible. Faith does what Peter does in verse 29. Gets out of the boat. It acts. Bearing this in mind, I think it's odd that a lot of us, a lot of people, when when we read this particular story, there's a tendency to identify Peter as the failure. They focus on the fact that Peter's faith yo-yos a little bit. It waffles after he sees the waves and gets scared. So Peter's the failure in this story. What about the other disciples? They never even got out of the boat. They just sat there... ...chose the relative comfort and security of the boat. So here's what I think. I think that at least on this occasion... ...they're the ones who are the bigger failures. Yet nobody ever criticizes them. Nobody ever... Their failure goes unnoticed, uncritiqued. And there's a certain tragedy in all of this. Because in choosing to stay in the relative comfort... ...and security of the boat... They forfeited the possibility of joining Christ in something absolutely fantastic, something absolutely glorious. They missed a chance to learn in a firsthand and profound way that God can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. And that's tragic. Maybe that's happened to some of us. It certainly happened to me. There have been a lot of times in my life when my faith has been rather inactive or underactive, where I've stayed in the boat. but sometimes not. And I hope that happens more and more. Let me tell you about one of the times recently when I think I got out of the boat, just reflecting on this over the week. This was a few years ago in England. There was a friend of mine who was struggling. His drinking had gotten out of hand, really out of hand. His marriage was deteriorating rapidly. His kids were suffering. And a lot of people that knew him were talking about it, but nobody was talking to him about it. And in that moment, I felt Jesus come into my mind and summon me to have a conversation. Initially, I did not want to do that, because those conversations can be tricky and volatile. You don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't know how people are going to receive it. But I sensed Jesus say to me, I am at work in this, and I want you to join me. And so, a little bit begrudgingly, I called my friend. I said, Listen, I'm going down to London for the day on the train. I got to go meet someone. Would you like to ride down on the train with me? I'll buy you a train ticket. We'll have lunch and you can hang out for a little bit while I have my meeting and then we'll train back up. And he accepted the invite. And on the way down, we were sitting there in the train. You know, we'd had the kind of pleasantries exchange. And, and I looked at him and I said, Hey, buddy, are you doing okay? And I asked you that because I know you've been hitting the bottle a little bit heavy lately. I know that when people do that, it tends to mean that they're struggling and they're not doing all right. And I wanna know if you're doing all right. There was an initial moment of defensiveness, but it melted away pretty quickly. And then a really good, really open conversation ensued. And that conversation led to some other things, to some other help. And if you fast forward a few years, what you'll find today is a marriage that's being repaired and healed, a family that's intact and flourishing, kids, a lot of kids, and a better way of dealing with depression and discouragement. My buddy called me up a few months ago, and he said, I want you to know I'm so thankful you took the risk to invite me to London and to ask me that question, because things could have been so different otherwise. And I am so thankful that I was bold enough to get out of the boat against what I initially wanted to do. I want to to do that more. I want to do what Peter did more. I hope you do, too. Second key lesson from Peter's time on the water, it's there in verse 30 and 31, doubts surface, his faith becomes a little bit anemic, but it does not however entirely disappear and that's important to notice. Look at the tail end of verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, "O you of little faith, not oh you of absent faith, you atheist, that's not what he says, he says oh you of little faith and the Greek word here basically means that Peter was just in that moment trusting Jesus too little, that's all it means. Now, what does that teach us? It reminds us, and I want you to listen carefully now, that when you, in the context of Christian life, doubts are not incompatible with faith. In other words, when you become a follower of Jesus, when you get converted, it does not mean that you're never going to be assailed by doubts again. To the contrary, just look at Peter. In this moment, in this story, he was filled with both doubt and faith at the same time. They were coexisting in him. Faith stepping on the water, doubt sinking coexisting in him. And that's exactly what you find in all the stories of the people in the Bible, all the followers of God, doubt and in faith, in the, in the lives of the saints, the people, holiest people who ever trod this world, their lives, were, they were assailed with doubts. And every Christian that I know personally, we're all sinners, doubters, and uneven performers. So don't think you'll be exempt. But more importantly, don't despair when you find yourself assailed Because doubts will attack us. And the important thing is just not to let them master us. They will attack, but don't let them master. And how do we do that? How do we keep doubts from mastering us? Well, that takes me to the third little key lesson from this watery scene before us. What happens there in verse 31? Peter's doubting. He starts sinking. He cries out. And what does Jesus do? (laughs) Does he say, Dear, dear Peter... I can't believe your faith is yo-yoing. We cannot work with people like you. I'm going to have to let you go, buddy. (laughs) Hope you can make it to shore. Sayonara. That's not what he says. He reaches out and Peter is clasped and caught by Jesus. Verse 31. And that, friends, is worth the price of admission today. For the great antidote to our doubts is to cry out to Jesus and to be rejoined to him, to be clasped anew by him every day, every week, every time we have a doubt. Let me put it like this. We are not secure because we are sure of ourselves. We are secure because we trust that God is sure about us. We are not secure because we're sure of ourselves. We are secure because we trust that God is sure about us. And that's how you transition from thin faith, from weak faith, to big faith, and strong faith. From faith that is inactive, to faith that is zealous and venturesome. And that's a transition we're going to have to make many, many times over the course of our lives. And the good news is this, we can do it time and time and time again. Because in contrast to my own yo-yoing faith, to my waffling trust in God, Jesus' faithfulness to me and to us remains unflinchingly steady, ever reliable, always dependable. St. Paul puts it like this, when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. In other words, Jesus can't deny his own body and the church is his body. We are his body. He always remains faithful. Always remains faithful. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Now what does it mean practically? for us to cry out to Jesus and to be clasped and gripped anew by him in moments of doubt. A lot of things could be said here. One thing I wanna say today, for starters, it just means listening to him, listening to him. He's always speaking. We have his word and we have his spirit working in between us and with us and in us to help us hear his voice in his word to us, to me, to Chris, to Jeffers, to Angela, to Ryan to all of us the power that the world respects comes out of the mouth of a gun but the power that people of faith respects comes out of the mouth of Jesus and what comes out of his mouth what does God with us say he says I'm with you always until the end of the age Matthew 28 he says I will never leave or forsake you never never Hebrews 13 He says, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, and some of you really need to hear this today, neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever, ever, ever separate you from my love, Romans chapter 8. So let's be caught again and again by Christ through these words and other words. Let's walk on water maybe let's do things even more extraordinary than that, because did Jesus not say, even greater things than this you shall do. John 14. Let's worship him. Let's surrender to him and devote ourselves to him. Not just in an episodic manner here on Sunday morning or on Wednesday night when you go to church dinner or at your Bible study, but as a lifestyle. And not just in the mega storms of life, though they will come, but also and especially in the regular days with all the regular challenges and all the regular trials because it comes to this. The only opportunity that you will ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you're given this day, the house you live in, the family you've got, the job you've been given, the town in which we've been placed, the weather conditions that prevail at this moment. Jesus is more than ready to join us in all of these places and to help us when we stumble, when we doubt, when we start thinking, sinking. I want you to know that. I speak to you in the name of the three guys I admire the most, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.